Well, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you to Southwinds this morning. It's so good to see you. Uh, welcome you to our brand new two-week series called Who's Your One? And I'm going to explain uh, what that is about in a few minutes. But I just want to begin by saying I'm so glad uh, to be back and to be with you after a few weeks away for some vacation and uh, annual study leave. And before we get into the message today, um, I have a couple of things that I, I, I want to share. I think some of you know this, many of you do, that while we were gone, God blessed us with another grandchild. Amen. And her name is Lily. Her name is Lily, and she's seven pounds, seven ounces, 20 inches long, for those of you who like the stats. And uh, she's beautiful, and we're so excited uh, that she's here with us. And um, I was kind of wondering, do you want to see another picture of my first grandchild, Charlie? Anybody? You want to see a picture? Thank you for asking, by the way. Um, that's Charlie, and he's four months old now, and he's there with uh, his mama, um, our daughter, Abby, and we believe God is good uh, all the time, and all the time that God is good, he's been so good to us. Oh, that's for free, okay, but I have something else that I want to ask you to do before we get to the message today. And it's this. In two weeks, we're going to begin another series, and it's going to be a series on heaven, on the subject of heaven. I believe it will be one of the most important series that we've ever done. We're going to learn together for several weeks what the Bible teaches about heaven as it is now and what it will be out into eternity. And, and we're going to learn how incredibly relevant and practical the Bible's teaching on heaven is for your life today. Say today. What it means for today. And so uh, I want you to be praying about that, um, just getting ready for it. But what I'd like to ask you to do is if you have specific questions about heaven, maybe things you've always wondered about, if you would just send me emails in these next few weeks so I could know um, where some of us are and help me to focus the teaching and make sure that I address uh, some of these pressing questions that many of us have. All right? Well, we're going to jump into our message for today, and I want to get into it like this. Um, I think we all know that we all live by calendars in our lives, ways that we mark off time, and the most obvious, of course, is January begins a new year, the calendar for the year. But we have other calendars, right? And churches also have calendars, seasons, and uh, there's this sense in which we at uh, church begin a new season or a new calendar, a new year in the fall. You've probably noticed that. It kind of happens when school starts. And by the way, school started this year. And I'm just giving you a chance, moms, all the moms together say, <laughs> amen, amen. You're so glad. Yeah, um, I know, I know. Uh, but this year for Southwinds, we really are launching into what is a new season in our church's life, uh, different than most years, because it's kind of, we've, we've had our warm-up in our new auditorium, and now we're really going to get into it, right? And so as we are doing that, I want us to begin this new season here at the life of our church by focusing on our very first, our most essential, our core calling as Christ followers, and that is telling others about Jesus. Now, I'm going to explain more about what that means, specifically, practically, but I'm going to kind of come at it in a different way, and you can follow along with me uh, by opening your Bibles to Matthew 4, uh, verses 18 through 22. 
I want you to get there, and we're going to read those verses in a few moments. But I want to begin kind of to warm you up with a question. The question is, what comes into your mind when I say the word Christian? I'll play a little word association game right now, okay? Prime the pump, a few other questions. Uh, here's one. What's the first thing that pops into your mind when I say Bernie Sanders supporter? Or what do you think when I say Donald Trump supporter? Now, I'm not asking for any verbal response. I said what's in your mind, not your mouth. Okay, don't need any of that. How about this one? When I say vegan, what comes to mind? Besides gross. <laughs> or how about this? When I say crossfitter, what do you think? So with a pump prime, let me ask again, what comes into your mind when I say the word Christian? I think if most of us were to find 10 different people and ask those 10 people that question, we would probably get 10 different answers. And when you ask people in your neighborhood or you ask people at work, are you a Christian? They'll probably say all kinds of things. Some people will say yes. Some people will say no. Some people will say, well, I'm not really sure. Some people will say yes, but I'm not like, and they'll define themselves in some way. Some of you who are here today would explain that by saying at some point in your life you became one and others of you might even say that you've always been a Christian because you believe you were born a Christian some of you are listening right now you would honestly say well I don't think I am a Christian I'm not a Christian if, if I were to ask you what came into your mind when you heard that word there are some of you who would say something like this definition I heard recently, quote, Christians are judgmental, homophobic moralists who think they are the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. That's what some people think. Let me give you a surprising fact. Maybe you've never heard this before. The very first followers of Jesus did not call themselves Christians. Did you know that? That was not the name they chose for themselves. They never chose that name for themselves. In fact, when that name was first given to them, it was actually an insult. It was kind of a derogatory term used by people outside the Jesus community to, you know, to kind of diminish them. You're little Jesuses, little Christs. We actually see this in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, where Luke writes, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And notice that it's in the passive voice. They did not call themselves Christians. You say, so if the first Christians didn't call themselves Christians, then what did they call themselves? Well, the answer is right there in that verse. Do you see it? They called themselves disciples. Now, some of you are probably wondering right now, does this really matter? I mean, you know, what, what word we use? Some people actually believe that in changing the word we use to describe ourselves, we can miss out on some important aspects of what it truly means to follow Christ. Now, I, I'm not saying here, in case you're worried, that we're going to stop calling ourselves Christians around here at Southwinds. But I do want to show you today that the way we use this term Christian sometimes obscures the fact that a lot of people who call themselves Christians are not actually disciples. In fact, I would assert that the term disciple is crystal clear 
about what you actually become when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you choose to believe in him. It's a very important term. Let's read what Matthew writes, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, Dudah, and his brother, John. That was just for free today. Sorry. Um, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I don't know about you, but have you ever read that passage and it felt a little strange it felt a little odd i mean why would they just follow jesus it kind of feels like doesn't it jesus just shows up out of the blue says come follow me and these guys just walk away from everything doesn't it sort of feel like that Uh, it's not really like that and i think it'll make more sense if you understand some historical background and i want to wind this back earlier in these these men's lives uh, to the, fact, the, the time when they were kids. You see, all Hebrew boys would go to Torah school starting when they were five, and it was, it was a very uh, ex- uh, exciting thing. They, they began it with this beautiful ceremony where they would get all these five-year-old boys together, and they would begin reading from the Torah. They would start in Genesis, what we would call chapter one, and as they're reading these initial words of God these boys are hearing this, they would take a drop of honey and they would put it on each boy's tongue as they were hearing the words of God. And, you know, most of these boys were very poor back then. Uh, They would not have tasted sweetness like this before. This would have been the first time. And, And as the sweetness was overwhelming them, they would be hearing the words of God and it would be teaching them that the word of God was sweet. And they should long for it and desire it. And then for the next five years, they would memorize large sections of the Torah. Uh, about age 10, they would have kind of a weeding out process, and the, the students that weren't as good would kind of be set aside. They would go back and begin focusing on learning their father's trade, learning the family business, and the better students would continue on, and they would keep learning, these students, the rest of what we would know today as the entire Old Testament scriptures. But then at age 17, there would be another cut, and some others would step aside, and they would move fully into the family trade. But the very best students, those who aspired to continue, at this point, they had to go and find a rabbi and apply to become that rabbi's Talmud. Now, the word Talmud is the Hebrew word for disciple. And a, a rabbi would put prospective Talmudim, that's just the plural of Talmud, he would put them through a series of tests to determine if they were worthy. And rabbis back then were very selective because becoming a religious ruler was a highly respected career. You know, Hebrew boys back then didn't dream of becoming you know, baseball players or movie stars or rock stars. They wanted to be rabbis. And so rabbis were selective. And they were also selective because 
They knew when they chose a disciple, they were choosing someone they thought could become just like them. Not just know what they knew, but do what they did. And so Talmudim would follow the rabbis around for years. They would imitate them in every way. And supposedly, the highest compliment that you could pay a Talmud was to say to them, the dust of your rabbi is all over you. And this just meant if you followed your rabbi closely, whatever they stepped in, it just got on you. So in Jesus' day, there is this relationship. In Jesus' day, some scholars also say that there was a kind of rare form of rabbi who possessed a quality that not all rabbis possessed. And this quality was called, and by the way, this is like one of my very, very favorite Hebrew words. This quality was called shmiha. Shmiha. It means authority. Would you like to say shmiha? You kind of need to kind of start it back here, and if you do it right, it'll like put a little spray out, might get the person in front of you, just be careful. But just say shmiha. Say it. That's a good word, isn't it? So they would have this shmiha, this authority, and um, it, it, it was an idea that actually went all the way back to Moses when he passed on his authority to Joshua. It's kind of like what we refer to as ordination today, not exactly the same, but something like that. Its meaning really has evolved over thousands of years. But in Jesus' day, not every rabbi was seen as of having shmiha. Only certain rabbis, only elite rabbis, only rabbis who had not only mastered the Torah, but they had a kind of risen to a level where they gave fresh insights into the law that not every rabbi saw. Rabbis who were so close to God that they had actually been known to perform miracles. And they believed if you actually possessed Shmiha, two other rabbis who had Shmiha had to confer it on you. So it was a very exclusive club. It was very hard to get into. Now, all of that in your mind, let's go back to Matthew and this scene and think about this. Here is Jesus, and Jesus, we already know, he knows the Torah so well that we find him at age 12 in the temple instructing the adult teachers of the law. We know if we read the Gospels that Jesus would often say things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Fresh insights with authority. We read the Gospels, and all through the Gospels, people who hear him are astonished at his authority. One example, Matthew 7, 29 says, they were amazed because he taught them as one with shmiha, not as their scribes. See, Jesus had shmiha, and throughout his ministry, again and again, just pay attention, you'll, you'll see it, people just keep asking him, where did you get this shmiha? Where did you get this authority? And what they were really asking Jesus is who conferred it on you. They saw it. They knew that it was there. They, they experienced the reality of it. And then we know that Jesus did miracles like rabbis with Shmiha. I mean, he did them all the time. Right after this passage, if you could read it, uh, Matthew 4, 23 to 25, Jesus travels throughout the region. He's healing every disease among the people because he has Shmiha. And this is, I think, the best part. Go to the other side of this story that we've read. Before Matthew 4, Jesus goes out into the wilderness 
And he encounters John the Baptist, this camel skin wearing locust and honey eating prophet preaching in the wilderness who was a, a teacher just like oozing Shmiha, if there ever was one, John the Baptist. Jesus meets John, and John tells everyone that Jesus is so much greater than him that he wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And then moments later, after John baptizes Jesus, if you remember, God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you see what just happened? There are Jesus' two affirmations. And at that point, if you're paying attention, the little shmiha light on your dashboard ought to be going off, right? Shmiha, shmiha, shmiha. Jesus has shmiha, authority. So with that in mind, think of this. Jesus, this new rabbi with all this shmiha, he comes in Matthew 4, 18 to 22, and he chooses Peter and John, fishermen. James and Andrew, fishermen. The fact that they were fishermen tells us something very important. And you know what it is? It tells us that these guys Jesus picks were part of the B team, that they hadn't made the first two cuts. They were not the best of the best. I mean, just let that sink in. Do you see? Do you see how encouraging that should be to you? To me? See, when Jesus chose his team to build his movement, he chose the B team. Is anybody here encouraged by this? I just need to check. I need to understand if you're, you're understanding this. Because if you're not, I mean, if you think you're on the A team, I need to preach another sermon. I think um, we're all on the B team. Jesus chose us. And when you think about that and you get that, then you go, of course, they want to follow him. Of course. Because this rabbi with all this shmiha has come and he's chosen them, guys without much potential or influence or value in that culture. He's chosen them to follow him and to know God like he knew God, to know what he knew, to do what he did, to be filled with his power. Of course, they wanted to follow him course they wanted to be disciples so what does this story say to us today let me point out five truths for us the first one is this jesus chooses available people not the best and all of us say amen this is just a pattern we see all the way through the bible god is always confounding the world by going against the world's standards. God doesn't choose followers according to the world's standards. Jesus doesn't choose wealthy people or highly educated people or popular people or famous people or powerful people. Jesus starts with a bunch of fishermen. Jesus picks a disciple. It's actually Matthew, the guy who's writing this gospel we're reading from, as a disciple, and Matthew was an IRS agent. Who likes IRS agents? I'll give you the answer. No one. Jesus also picks a disciple that in our terms today would be a domestic political terrorist, an extremist. 
You will notice if you read the list of the people Jesus picked, not a single rabbi's in the bunch. Jesus chooses the B team because his work in the world would not come from their abilities in him. It would come from what he would do through them. You ever notice how people with a lot of a talent and ability tend to get in the way of Jesus? Because they think, sometimes it's we think that we're the ones doing it. Jesus wants people who know they have to depend on his power to do his work. See, Jesus taught throughout his ministry that the greatest uh, ministry is done, the greatest power is expressed through the weakest vessel. And the weakest vessel, depending on him, was infinitely greater than the strongest, greatest talent without him. I love the promise Jesus gave to his disciples later on in Matthew when he said, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Have you ever read that and just kind of scratch your head? What is he saying here? I mean, you need to know, Jesus loved John the Baptist. Jesus thought John the Baptist was an amazing prophet. They were cousins, but that wasn't why. John was an amazing man. He was an incredibly great man. But he looks at his disciples, this B team, and he tells them that the very least person in his kingdom, greater than John the Baptist. See, least in the kingdom, what does that mean? Well, it could mean, you know, the, you have the least talent maybe or, or the least knowledge of God's word or the least amount of spiritual gifting. I was thinking about it this week. And, you know, I guess statistically you could say that there's someone here at Southwinds and they are the least in the kingdom of heaven at Southwinds, right? I mean, mathematically, not trying to be mean or anything like that, but it, it must be true. You know, one of you here, you have the least talent. You're the least eloquent. You know the least about the Bible. And right now, some of you are thinking, I, I think he might be talking about me. <laughs> and right now, God in heaven is saying, yep, that's you. <laughs> now, here's the point. Even if that were true, and that's really not the way to think about it, even if that were true, you Whoever you are, you are greater in God's eyes than John the Baptist. You have more power and potential for ministry than John. Why? Because you have something John didn't, and that is the Holy Spirit living inside you. Jesus was saying, from this point on in my kingdom, and it's not going to be about your abilities for me, it's going to be about your availability to me. Do you understand how encouraging and how freeing that is if you really get it and believe it? Your job as a disciple is to be available first and foremost. You allow God's power to work through you, and when you do, he can do far more than you can ever ask or think or even imagine. See, God wants to use each and every one of you in his family he wants to use you to minister to people in your family. He wants to use you in your neighborhood and in your place of work. And one of the things that means, and maybe this is the application for someone here today, is you need to stop making excuses about why you can't do what God tells you clearly in his word to do. 
Anybody here need to stop making excuses today? Your job, according to Jesus, is just to make yourself available to him. It's his power, not yours. It's his wisdom, not yours. It's his words, not yours. Jesus wants people to be available. Second truth, Jesus chose us. We didn't choose him. Now, as I I said earlier, rabbis usually gain followers by picking from the best of the best of all those who applied to him. You know, if a rabbi liked what he saw, well, he would choose that person. And his choosing was intended to give that individual confidence. You know, if, if you were chosen and life was hard, then the Talmud could say, my rabbi believed in me, my rabbi chose me. It it might be sort of like, you know, uh, Bruce Bochy telling you he saw real potential for you to play Major League Baseball, or, or Steve Kerr, you know, coming and telling you he would love to have you try out for the Warriors. It would just give you confidence to know that they had that confidence in you. But Jesus' followers, by contrast, didn't even ask to be on the team. He came and chose them when they weren't even looking for him. Do you understand how much confidence that would give them? Do you see what kind of confidence that is supposed to give you? We actually see this all the way throughout the New Testament. Jesus and Paul and Peter, they they use this concept of choosing repeatedly. And sometimes we focus on things that aren't really at the center I think the central thing that they're saying to us is meant to give us confidence. We were chosen as a means of instilling confidence. We see this in Romans. We see it in Ephesians. We see it in 1 Peter. And and this is meant for us in our lives as we understand that Jesus chose us as his disciples, not we chose him, that he has come to us and giving us his power and his promise to see through what he's called us to do. This is what Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Now, for some of you who are into theology, you just need to know Jesus here is not just trying to say, hey, guys, I'm a Calvinist. That's not the central point here. He is instilling confidence in his followers. And maybe somebody needs this right now. Maybe some of you are struggling right now, maybe in your marriage or maybe in your career or maybe as a a parent. Maybe you need to be reminded right now, Jesus chose you. And, And when you know that, you may not feel confident about your abilities, but you can be confident in the promise that he has given that he will work in you to do what he's called you to do. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but usually when our confidence fails, this is where it fails. I I think many times it's not that we're so much losing confidence in Jesus as we're losing confidence in his promises to us. You know, we sang that song right before the message, and it's drawn from a a story in, in the Gospels that we find in Matthew 14. You know the story. Jesus approaches a boat that his disciples are in. He's walking on the water. Peter sees Jesus walking on the water, thinks that looks cool, says, can I come out, Jesus? And Jesus says, sure, come on out. And Peter walks on the water. Is that on anybody's bucket list? That would be awesome. But then after a short period of time, we don't know how long, Peter looks at the waves and he sinks. Now, we say what that means is Peter lost confidence in Jesus. But 
I'm going to question that. Think about it. Peter's sinking, but he's looking up at Jesus. Jesus is still doing fine. Jesus is still walking on the water. What he's lost confidence in is Jesus' promise to hold him up. See, many of you aren't maybe doubting Jesus. Maybe you're doubting Jesus' promise to work through you and do what he said he would do through you. See, if you're discouraged in your marriage, it, it may not be that you, you doubt Jesus' ability to be a husband because you know if Jesus was married to your spouse, he would be a great husband, right, guys? But you're not so sure that God can use you to be the great husband he's called you to be. You know, you're, you're confident that if Jesus was raising your kids, he'd do an amazing job. You, you have no doubt that Jesus would be the very best witness to your neighbors or, or your coworkers like ever. But that's not what he promised. His promise is that he would do those things through you. And that's what you need to remember when life is hard. That's what you need to remember when you are up against a wall in your marriage or with your kids, when it seems impossible that you're ever going to break through. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What God has purposed, God will bring to pass. Later on, Paul also says, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Amen? Paul also says, if we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful, because he cannot deny himself. When I am unable, he is always able. Isaiah 46, 11 says, what I have said, that will I bring about what I have planned, that will I do. Friends, when Jesus chose you, he had a plan. He had a plan for your family and a plan for your marriage, a plan for your work, and a plan to use you to produce spiritual fruit. And his plan has never depended on your power. It has always depended on his power to do it through you. And that's where we must put our confidence. See, even when you fall apart, God's still at work. God's plan remains. Number three, our highest calling is to be with him. Do you notice what it says in verse 19? Jesus says three words, come, follow, what's next? Say it loud. Me. Me. By the way, when Jesus said it, he said, leha karai. That's cool too, huh? Is that more impressive? Just go, you know, to work tomorrow morning. You wanted somebody to come see something, just go, leha karai. <laughs> see what happens. Could be fun. But Jesus says that, and what he is saying to them is this You're coming to be with me. And I want you to notice in this call, he doesn't tell them where they're going, he doesn't tell them what they're going to do, what assignment he's going to have. His primary call on all of his followers is not to do something. It is to be with him and therefore become like him. That's his call on your life. And you see, to become like him, you have to know him. And to know him, you have to spend time in his word. This is why, please hear me, I keep telling you again and again and again, I've been doing this for years, that you have to get into the word of God. Each of us must read it for ourselves. This is how we get to know Jesus. This is how we become like Jesus. 
And following Jesus is more than reading the Bible, but it is never less. And I hammer on this for this reason. Some of us here, we struggle and we struggle and we struggle and we don't know why. And it's been going on for years. We never seem to make progress in the Christian life. And so much of our struggle comes right back here. We're not spending time in God's word. We don't know how to think. And so therefore, we don't know how to speak. And so therefore, we don't know how to act and behave in our lives. And we keep doing the same thing. We're not reading God's word and taking that in and learning who Jesus is and becoming like him. It has to do with his word. And we have a lot of outlets for doing this here. I mean, weekly messages and where we teach God's word in small groups, where we study God's word together. I mean, part of what I want to say at this point is it needs to be more than you just coming to hear me teach like once a week. You need to be feeding yourself on God's word every day. There's so much more to say here. I just don't have the time. But here's a question for you to think about at this point. Do you want the dust of your rabbi to be all over you? Then get his word inside of you until his word dominates your thinking and it dominates your behavior until you think it and you talk it and you quote it and you share it and you just live it out. You can't know Jesus any more than you know his word. Fourth truth, to follow Jesus, we must leave everything. And this is a part um, of walking in the dust of our rabbi that Sometimes we don't want to talk about too much. Matthew writes, Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I want you to notice, Matthew identified two things they left specifically. Why did he identify those two things? Well, here's the reason. These two things uh, represent what are usually the two most significant things in each of our lives. Boats, that's kind of like our career, how, how we would provide for ourselves. Father, it speaks of our most significant relationships and family. And what he's really saying here is to follow Jesus in truth, Jesus has to take precedence over both of those. Now, I think sometimes we get confused about this a little bit because most of us in our country, in our culture, at this point in time, we'll, we'll probably not ever literally lose our fathers and our mothers over Jesus. Some might. And all around the world, there are people right now who are being forced to choose Jesus or family. There are people all around the world right now, today. It's going to happen today, friends. They're going to choose Jesus over their families, and their families are going to kill them. It's happening. But that's not happening for us at this point in time. So what does it mean? Well, it means Jesus must take precedence. He must be first over everything. I mean, it may be that for some of us, Jesus will, will tell us to change careers. You know, he, he may tell us that he's calling us to do something different. For most of us, probably not going to be that dramatic, but you will have moments, every one of us will have moments when we have to to make choices, when we have to decide what will hold greater sway over our lives. We have some students in the room right now, high school, college students. 
Some of you are going to be the only one among your group of friends who follows Jesus. And your friends will not understand why you won't do certain things with them. And you may get labeled as that religious girl. Or they may call you the virgin. And you're going to have to decide if Jesus has a larger presence in your life than your friends. Some of you are in business and tomorrow you're going to go to work and you're going to get challenged at this point. The temptation to cut corners, to be dishonest in some way. Everyone does it, right? Why won't you? And you're going to have to decide. Am I going to trust God? Am I going to live in ways that honor him? Even if those ways don't seem to advance my career. You know, for some of us, this comes about with what we do with our income. You know, Scripture teaches in unequivocal terms that God calls all of his followers to give up everything that they have to put him first so that we recognize God is the owner of everything. We are simply stewards of that. And for most of us, this really means we give our first and our best back to God. For Christians, that usually starts with 10%. And it's an amazing thing to me as a pastor for over 30 years how many people who name the name of Christ, think that all these words of Jesus in this area don't apply to them. And we simply choose to say that we are going to live a different way. We're going to do what we want to do. So you're going to have to decide. You're going to have to decide what this word means in your life. But it means that Jesus comes first that everything else is behind him. To follow Jesus means that you subject everything in your life to his lordship. You forsake all that he has forbidden. You pursue all that he has prescribed. You follow him. And then number five, Jesus commands us to reproduce spiritually. And this is where this comes to head with all of this background that we've been moving to. All of these things leads to this point for what we're focusing on today. Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus says, being my disciple always includes reproducing spiritually. How many of you would agree to this statement? Jesus was a fisher of men. Would you just raise your hand if you agree? that statement how many of you agree with the statement that following jesus means we're supposed to be like him would you agree with that do i need to ask the third question like you all know where i'm going right why do we think that in this one area that doesn't apply to me the truth is we're all called to serve some role to carry out responsibilities as God gives us opportunity in this area of reproducing spiritually. Now, some of you right now are thinking, ah, you're kind of a little dramatic, Mike. You know, this is a little hyperbole. I mean, I know you haven't preached for a few weeks and you're all pumped up about getting back to preach again. Is that what it is? Well, how about this? Jesus says this, John 15, 8. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. You know, kind of in the old days, people used to say that fruit was only new believers in Jesus Christ, and we kind of swung to the other side of the pendulum, and now people, some, think, some people think it's just the fruit of the Spirit, it's your character, and it's not that. Here's the thing, it's not either 
or. It's both and. Part of reproducing fruit is reproducing spiritually, and that means new disciples. That's why Jesus gave us the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Some of you know this. In the Greek text, those words, go and baptize and teach, they sound like commands when we read them, but they're actually participles, like going and baptizing and teaching. And those participles grammatically derive their force from the one controlling verb in that sentence, and that is this, make disciples. This means that everything we do here at Southends grows out of a call to make disciples. This is what we are about. We have a lot of ministries, but fundamentally the core of all of them is about making disciples. And I think sometimes we get a little confused on this. I mean, we, we do love to show kindness and mercy and meet needs wherever we see them with a homeless and orphan and underprivileged, unwed mothers and on and on. But the core of all of those things as we help people is teaching them that Jesus saves, sharing with them the gospel. Some of us, especially the younger we get, are moved more and more by the needs of our world, and those needs are great, but maybe you need to be reminded today that the greatest need of all is the need for people to hear about Jesus. See, some of us are, are moved most by the suffering of people, maybe by the suffering of the refugee or the suffering of those that are hungry and, and many more, and those things are so important, but the greatest suffering, never forget, the greatest suffering of all is eternal suffering, which is what people who don't know Jesus will experience. This means that we should give our lives to meet needs and relieve suffering. But in all we do, what should control us is this longing deep in our hearts to help people meet Jesus and hear the good news and experience his salvation. See, Jesus summarized his ministry in a few places. Here's one of them, Luke 19.10. Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. That's why Jesus came. And if he summarizes his ministry that way, and if we're his followers, then that means we should summarize our lives that way as well. I think sometimes we kind of think that this is just something that other people do here at church while some of us watch them do, but it's got to be central to everything we do. If you've thought always that this is not for you, you need to hear today that you've been wrong, that Jesus has called you and chosen you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. So the question really is, do you want to live in the dust of your rabbi? <laughs> do you love Jesus and want to be close to him? Do you want to know him more and more intimately? Now here's where all of this is headed. We, we, we cannot do any of those things if we're not part of Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost, because this is what it means to be a disciple, a follower who patterns his or her life after the master. And, and as your pastor, I long for each one of us, every one of us, to become part of carrying out God's mission in this way. By God's grace, I'm praying that each of you who are hearing me today will become a reproducing disciple over this next year. And this is what we're about in this two-week series. Today and next Sunday, I'm, 
I'm calling us to commit to that. And I'm calling us to this with this simple question. That's the title of the series, Who's Your One? See, the focus of what we're talking about uh, for each of us is not for each of us to win Tracy or Mountain House or Lathrop. It's not for each of us to win our subdivision or our street. It's just one. Who's your one? God is calling us to identify and to reach out to one person, I believe, who we will pray come to know him over this next year. How do we do this? Well, I'm going to real quickly lay some things out that you can write down, but then you'll want to come back next week when we explain some of these in more detail. Uh, But here's how it will go. First of all, I'm challenging you to identify your one. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's some way, someone who's at work. Uh, On the way out, we're going to pass out these bookmarks, and as you'll see when you get one, on this backside, this part of it, is a little tear-off card where you can write a name down and you can put it somewhere like in your Bible, that's where I put it, where you'll see it every day. And and it'll remind you to pray for that person and to look for opportunities to share the gospel with that person. I just want to ask you to dream a little bit. What would it be like if everyone in this room did that? I'm just telling you, if everyone in this room did that at the end of a year, I believe we would see more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ than we've ever, ever seen before. And this is a church where we have been involved in evangelism in significant ways. I don't know if you know this, many of you do, but over the last 16 years, over 1,200 people have professed faith publicly by being baptized here at Southlands. Many of you are included in that number. Lots and lots of people have come to faith, but what if God wants to do way more? So we're, we're called to identify our one. The second thing we need to do is real simple. Every day, pray for your one. And this bookmark is going to help you to do that. Uh, next week, we're going to provide another resource, a 30-day prayer guide. We're going to start a 30 days of prayer for people in our lives uh, next week. And we'll talk more about how that's going to work. But you identify someone, you pray for them. And then the third thing is you show hospitality to your one. This just means you build relationships with, with those people in your life. You invite them into your life. How do you say, how do I do that? I, I don't know. It, it's up to you. You need to do that in a way that fits who you are. But this doesn't just mean, you know, you go slam someone up against, you know, a wall and say, look, my pastor told me I've got to share the gospel with you. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about knocking on doors of strangers, you know, and reading them out of a tract, something that they should hear talking about doing this with the people in your life that you already know this should be the prime focus of what god calls us to the fourth thing is you share the gospel with your one and what we believe is if you identify your one and you begin to pray for your one and you get involved in their life god's going to open doors at some point you're going to have an opportunity to share the gospel with them and then the fifth thing is bring your one So at some point in this process, um, earlier, later, depends, you invite this person to come and be part of what we're doing here at Southlands, to experience the worship of God in this place, to hear the Bible taught, to meet other believers in Jesus Christ. You invite them to your small group, but you get them involved by asking them, inviting them to be a part. 
we'll talk a little more about these things next week practically, but here's my question for you as I close. It's twofold. The first part of the question is simply this. Are you a disciple? See, maybe you've never understood this until now, but are you actually a disciple or are you just a Christian? Have you truly committed to follow Jesus Christ? Do you truly understand who it is who has called you? I mean, talk about a teacher with shmiha, with authority. Jesus didn't just give new insights. Think about what we read in the Gospels. He spoke to the wind and the waves, and they obeyed. He commanded demons, and they fled. He spoke to diseases, and people everywhere were healed. Jesus talked to dead people, and they got up and walked out of graves. By him all things exist. For his glory they were created. By his blood they were redeemed. According to his purpose they live. He has no rival. He has no equal. This is our teacher. This is our Lord. This is our master. Shmiha everywhere. Will we live in accordance with that? Will you follow him? You see, friends, if Jesus is who he says he is, then he deserves more than casual association and church attendance. He deserves total surrender, complete obedience, utter adoration. And some of us may need to stop being Christians and actually become disciples. And maybe you never understood that until today. Maybe this is clarity for the first time that you've got to put him first over everything in your life. Let me just tell you what the gospel is. The gospel is that you could not save yourself. Nothing you could do would ever suffice. And so Jesus, God's son, came to die the death that you should have died. He took your place. And he paid the penalty for your sins. And he now offers to save you. He offers freely as a gift his salvation to whoever will receive it. But friends, the one condition for receiving it is that you become his disciple and that you surrender everything to him. See, I don't care really uh, what kind of prayer you prayed. I don't care what kind of family you grew up in. The only issue that matters is have you become his disciple? Have you received him? Have you surrendered to him? And then the second part of that question is, are you engaging in his mission? Are you reproducing yourself? Because what I've been showing you today really comes down to this. If you're not, you never have, and you never intended tend to do that, it's just really not in your plan, then maybe you could consider the possibility that you're not really a disciple. See, the call to follow Jesus and the call to make disciples is one and the same. That's what Jesus did with these men in Matthew 4. That's what he's doing in our lives. Now, again, Let's don't stereotype this. I know that we all play different roles in the mission of sharing good news with our ones. Some of us need to put aside some of those stereotypical ideas that we have about what it means to be a witness. God's not calling everybody to be in front of a bunch of people like he's called me. You may have a very quiet role. You may, you may play it in, in very different ways, but each of us has a part to play. And so you need to pray and ask God for power and ask God for wisdom, ask God to open doors, and then when he opens those doors, what do you do? You walk through those doors, and you trust that the God who saved you and forgave all of your sins will be with you and will give you the words to say, and he will do 
what only he could do. And when you trust him, you will always be enough. And when you live like that, I'm just telling you, friends, God is going to do some amazing things through you. Do you believe that? Then let's live like it. Let's see God work. Let's make this an amazing year as we are available, trusting God to do his work through us. Would you bow your heads as we pray together?